Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. So today we're super excited to have our friend Nan with us talking about Jane Austen. She loves Jane Austen and she's a teacher. She so she knows tons about her and everything else. <laughs> so we're super excited to have her on today. They know my history with Jane Austen, which is I haven't enjoyed her novels in the past. So she's scary. And I would read and not understand what I was reading. And I'm now reading, I've started reading Pride and Prejudice for the podcast, and I'm liking it way more than I've ever liked Jane Austen in the past. And I think it's all of this practice with the classics that I've had over the last year. So I'm super excited. And I want to know from you guys, when you fell in love with Jane Austen books, what was your first experience with her? I don't know. Tell us a little bit about, actually, we probably should have had Nan tell us about herself first. Yeah, let's let's take a minute. We'll do we can just back up and let's have Nan introduce herself for a minute. Yeah, Nan, tell us a little bit about you. It's a good lead-in because for me, my love of Jane Austen is all wrapped up in like the mission of what you guys are trying to do here on your podcast is that my mom introduced me to the classics as a kid. And there were always books around my house. Now, admittedly, when I was young, Sometimes my mom was into those like bodice ripper kind of novels, like, and she would stash them all over the house. Like you'd sit on the couch and there'd be a book behind a pillow and you'd pull it out. And it was like one of my mom's books, right? She doesn't do that anymore. But when I was a kid, like there were books everywhere. I don't know that it was always like the best books, but there were definitely like books in our home. And then every year for Christmas, my mom would give me a book. And those books were usually like packed with some kind of meaning for her. And she always encouraged me to read. And I read everything I could get my hands on. I think in as you start like gaining your own identity, maybe late elementary school, middle school, I was like the reader. That was like my identity. And I would have friends, they would kind of, when my friends all went boy crazy and started like thinking about clothes a lot, I matured a little later and I, in that way, and it just was astounding to me that they cared about any of that. And so I was the girl that like always had a big book and we'd go to the library and I would read, I mean, I read Dickens in the sixth grade. I read Little Women that year. Um, I read my first Steinbeck novel in the fifth or sixth grade. I read everything I could get my hands on. And so every year for Christmas, my mom would sort of gift me with some book that was really meaningful to her. And so in that way, um, that's how I read Anne of Green Gables. Um, she gave me Wrinkle in Time one year, which I would highly suggest as you think about classic children's literature. I know it's not quite as old as some of the other ones you guys have been reading, but I think um, for me, that was a real foray into thinking about science fiction. So that was powerful. The Narnia books I read as a child, the little house books I read this way. Um, she gave me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird when I was about 13, which I read and loved. Hero on the Crown and the Blue Sword. Now, some of these were books my mom hadn't read, but they said they had the Newbery stamp of approval on the front. So she bought them. Where the Red Fern Grows, and that was my first experience with a read aloud. I read Where the Red Fern Grows to my brother, who's about six or seven years younger than I am, seven years younger. 
And I still remember like that being a very core memory for me, us sitting on the top of his bunk bed and crying our eyes out when we got to the end of where the red fern grows. And in turn, I've now read that to all my kids. And it's kind of a core memory for my brother too, who's not a very emotional person. And he has sometimes will say like, the last time I cried is when we read Where the Red Fern Grows when I was eight years old, right? Of course, one of these books, this is kind of leading up to what we're talking about today. I think the year I was in the eighth or ninth grade, my mom gave me a copy of Pride and Prejudice. And she handed it over with a reverence almost that was like, I know this book might be hard and it's one of my favorites and I just want you to love it so much. And this was the thing my mom and I always had in common. She tried to get my sister into reading. She tried to read her Heidi and it was like a family fight every week when my mom would try to get my sister to sit down and read Heidi to her. It's still kind of an ongoing family joke 30 years later that like mom wants to spend time with Amanda. Maybe they should read Heidi. Like my sister did eventually become a reader, but not at that time. Anyway, my mom just really instilled this love of the classics in me from a very young age. And I'm sure I was reading way above my ability. The first time I read Pride and Prejudice, I couldn't figure out why she wasn't with Wickham. Like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I thought he was the he was the guy. So anyway, that's kind of my backstory and where I've come to with with Jane Austen and just... um I don't know. It's it, it's part of my it's just part of my personality to love reading this much. And these books I read as a child became part of me. You know, there's that line in the oh the movie You've Got Mail where Kathleen Kelly's in her like children's bookshop, which to me sounds like the dream job of all dream jobs. And she's in this bookshop and she's like giving this almost like speech, like what you read as a child becomes part of you and it sinks into you. And I remember being in the movie theater and seeing that movie and thinking, yes, preach. Like that is truth to me. And so I think if we're going to um, help our children become who we want them to be, the best way to gain experiences outside your own limited worldview is to read. And if we read classics, they're classics for a reason. And different people define that in different ways. But there's lots of places we find these eternal truths. Anyway, that's my soapbox. <laughs> I was so the reason we're doing Pride and Prejudice is because my niece, who's in eighth grade, was homeschooling this year for English. And my sister was like, We're gonna read Pride and Prejudice. And so she said to me, Will you please do it on the podcast? Because she's read it. And I'm like, if my niece that's like 13 can read Pride and Prejudice, I could probably handle it. <laughs> so that's why we're doing it. All right, Amity. I love it. That's awesome. And first of all, Nan, that was beautiful and powerful. And it like everything that you said, like completely supports everything that we're trying to do. And so that was just perfect. So as far as Jane Austen, it's like I've expressed before, like I, I was a reader as a child and books were definitely encouraged. There wasn't a ton of like um, my parents reading aloud a little bit, but not very much. But as far as Jane Austen. Those books were always around our house. My first like real exposure was the five hour Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. We watched that every single road trip, the entire thing, like all of us, my brothers, everybody. And then I would go home and watch it again and watch it again. And I loved it so much. <laughs> it just like spoke to my soul. And then it's kind of sad to say, but really probably my first 
love and exposure for Jane Austen was like through some of the movies that were made like in the nineties and early two thousands. And there's been better versions probably that have come out and of others. I don't like anything else that's come out with like the pride and prejudice. I only like the Colin Firth version. And I, I love the, the gal who plays Lizzie and I just can't think of her name right now, but anyways, or Jennifer L. Yeah, it's fantastic. But then there was the Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant Sense and Sensibility that I just love so much. And then later on, several years later, there's one with uh, the guy who plays Matthew in Downton Abbey. What is his name? Anyways, so he was in Sense and Sensibility as Edward. That was a really wonderful version. I loved Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow. Honestly, loved that. But then there was another version that came out several years later that was like much longer and like way better. Movies. Movies were my first exposure. But I felt like they did a really, really wonderful job because then I was like, okay, now I've got to read the books. And the thing is with that Pride and Prejudice with the Jennifer L and Colin Firth, like they were so true to the book that honestly I read it in ninth grade for my honors English class. And I like, I read through the book pretty fast. I was like, yeah, yeah, this was good and stuff. But honestly, when it came to to the test, I just remembered everything from the movie and I aced the test and like wrote my essays based on the movie. And I'm like, aced all of it. So that was the testament that the movie was very well done. So there it is. There's my plug for that one. <laughs> I don't like the Keira Knightley one. Anyways, okay. That was my first exposure, first love, and then just read the books from there and just fell in love with Jane Austen in general and just her brilliance and her her ability to capture life and to just be so real. Like there's just nothing fake about her. Like she creates these characters that you love them and some of them you hate them. And she's, I don't know, she's just brilliant. Love it. What's your favorite Jane Austen book? Well, I have to probably say Pride and Prejudice just because that was like my first love. But I do, I, I just like all of them. I think, well, I will say I'm not as familiar with like Mansfield Park, Northanger Abbey or Sanditon, but Sanditon wasn't really even finished. But I love, love Emma. I really love Emma. I really love Sense and Sensibility and Persuasion. So I don't know. I can't really. Nan, what's your favorite? For me, it's definitely Pride and Prejudice. I I think any strong girl or woman or writer or anybody ever, I think we all owe a debt to Elizabeth Bennett that we don't even recognize we owe. Because I think that's how groundbreaking this novel was when Jane Austen wrote it. And when you, you think about the time period in which she wrote it and what was expected of women and Elizabeth's strength within the sphere she was allowed to be strong in, it ushered in a whole new era for thinking about women in literature. And Elizabeth Bennett is the first. Sense and Sensibility had some uh, really good critical acclaim when it came out. And Pride and Prejudice was actually written later, or finished later. It was started earlier, finished later. But I just think Elizabeth is so enduring as a character. And nearly everybody that's ever played Elizabeth in film ends up nominated for an Academy Award. Like I would say that her and Joe March are the two characters that like women in the West owe a debt to without even recognizing we owe these characters a debt. I love it. I'm so excited. This makes me so excited to read it. So I I just have a really quick introduction to Jane Austen and her life. She was born in 1775. She died in 1817 at 42 years old, which 
is sad because we could have gotten way more, way more writing from her. But she was, this is interesting. She was the seventh child. And in 1801, so she was six years old, they moved to Bath. And so they were relatively poor as a family. She published her novels under a different name. And then when she died, it came out um, who who the author actually was. And she was never married, which is very interesting considering her, the themes in her literature, but she was never married. And it says that she preferred to be an author. She didn't want to be a wife. And then Pride and Prejudice was written, this is interesting to me too, from 1797 to 1812. That's a long time, 15 years. Published in 1813. Yeah, because she had the scripts for a few of her novels before she ever tried to publish them or like like, had the opportunity to. Like Nan was saying, I mean, it just... It was very difficult for a woman to publish. And the publishing world was a really tricky world too. Like you had to be extremely savvy to be able to get any money out of it. And she did not get nearly what was her due just because she wasn't familiar with the world of publishing. It probably is why agents became a thing, you know, because she kind of tried to go to bat for herself and it just didn't work out as well as it should have. And what's sad too, like thinking about the marriage thing is I do believe there were some opportunities that she passed by and in the end, her family kind of resented her over it. You can see that in letters between her and one of her sisters. A lot of Austin's letters were saved because she'd enjoyed the moderate success she'd been able to as a writer, but had she married, that was really the only way for women to like amass wealth was through marriage. And because she chose not to get married her family like there it was bad like there was they were there was a lot of poverty and it wasn't a time period where it was easy just to go work hard and not be in poverty anymore it wasn't really like that there were members of her family that deeply resented that she had chosen never to get married and if she had like the world would not have these novels i'm so grateful that she was willing to like follow this dream in a time period when it was almost impossible to do so, especially for women. And it took a lot of courage for her to make the choices she did and the world is better for it. But her own life, it came at a great sacrifice. When she was 20, uh, she was, she like you say, she did have a couple of opportunities. And then there was a time that she met Tom Lafroy and she was pretty sure that he was going to propose. And then he didn't. And it really was because his family was like, well, she's not wealthy enough. She's not going to bring any t- anything to the table, basically. And so he like walked away. And it's so funny. There was something I was reading that somebody was like, isn't it interesting that the only reason that anybody knows anything about Tom Lafroy is because of Jane Austen. And yet she wasn't good enough for his family. <laughs> Too bad. So sad. But the thing is, you like hear about that story and you hear about the hard things in her life. And she like writes them into her books like so much as I was like learning about her life I'm like oh you see that in Sense and Sensibility like a lot in Sense and Sensibility especially where her brothers had to help take care of her and her mother when her father died and and just the the men walking away because she wasn't wealthy enough and um you, anyway just a lot is injected into her books it was writing I think was probably her therapy and rightly so There's one of my favorite lines about Austin is actually found in the book, Austin Land, um, which Laura and I would remember. Amity, were you in the book group when we did Austin Land? No, but I read it on my own years ago. And I was like, this is, it's the Shannon Hale one, right? 
Yes. 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 I was and like, it, it's hilarious. It's like every Jane Austen fan's dream. Like, yeah. And at the same time, she has this brilliant way of like skewering Austen fans for how psycho we can get. Yes. Right. Like, for it's sure. Both it's both a tribute and a skewering, yeah. which I feel like Austen would just have loved because she loves to point out the absurd. And I think that's what Shannon Hill does in that book. But there's a line in that book where she talks about Austen having always been this kind of classic author until the BBC version came out with Colin Firth. And then suddenly what really like a novel that's meant to be humorous and snarky and kind of a skewering of the society that Austen lived in suddenly became a romance. And then there's this huge proliferation of like Regency romance that has kind of built up around it. And what she points out, and I, I I, I think I have the book, I need to look it up and find it, but she basically makes the point is that once you strip away Austin's prose and all you're watching is the story, you lose a lot of the tone of what Austin is attempting to do. So I love film versions too. And I do like aspects of the Kira Knightley version. I don't like it as well as the long one, but I do think while the films have a lot of value and I do think it can be a great like introduction to Austin. I think the fear we have when we trade the movies for the books is that we lose why Austin is really, really magical because the, the tone, that kind of arch snarky, almost tone that Austin has in her books is so challenging to replicate in film because even though Austin's characters are really, really witty, the wittiest person in Pride and Prejudice is the narrator and it's not Elizabeth, it's Austin narrating this novel and the best lines are not always ascribed to a character sometimes they're just in the prose those are the lines that are really really hard to ascribe to anybody now when they're done in film version and especially in the bbc version a lot of austin's great commentary lines are given to elizabeth to say because i feel like there's a lot of overlap between who elizabeth is and who austin must have been and so they they work those lines in in that way but a lot of those lines were never ascribed to a character it's just like this kind of like funny voice in your ear in the background while they're telling this story i think the other thing is thinking a little bit about the history Austin is writing in a time period we call the Regency period. And so what the Regency period is, is basically uh, King George III went crazy. They think he probably had some kind of metabolic disorder. But they couldn't officially crown somebody new the king until he died. And what he was crazy with wasn't killing him. And so for about 12 to 15 years or so, his son was essentially ruling the country in his place. And he was the prince regent. So there's this kind of short time period just after the French Revolution and before Victoria comes to power, there's this kind of short time period that they call the Regency period, which is when the prince regent is in charge in England. And so Austin would have started writing Pride and Prejudice. It was called First Impressions. She would have started writing it during the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, it was like late 1700s when it, she started writing it, not published till like 1812 or 1813, you said. Mm -hmm. She did like a major rewrite on it. And one of the reasons they changed the title is that Sense and Sensibility had been popular. They liked that type of a title. So she went for Pride and Prejudice. And then there was another novel named First Impressions that was written in the early 1800s that never amounted to much, but she didn't want to publish an, the same title. And the other thing that would have changed really dramatically during this time, it's kind of interesting if you look at fashion. 
fashions changed dramatically also because the English aristocracy did not want to look like they were doing anything French because the French aristocracy had been overthrown during the revolution. And up until the French revolution, British high society was not markedly different than French high society. Fashions were the same. It's that kind of powdered wig style. I call it the stovepipe dress where the women had the really, really tight corsets that went all the way up to their armpits, down to their waist. And um, the huge like hips in the dresses and tons of layers. And it was very formal. And then there's this complete rejection of everything French. So the, the clothing styles go to those high empire waist styles. The dresses are thinner. They don't have as much fabric underneath them. It's a more natural style. It looks awful when you see it, but it was more comfortable than what they were wearing previous to that time. And so during Austin's evolution as a writer, British high society also undergoes this major change to kind of a rejection of all things French. And then there's like the Napoleonic Wars. And so Britain doesn't want anything to do with France. And so they sort of redefine themselves to look, there's a more specific British character during the Regency period. Anyway, I think it's just really interesting. Austin writes during that time. And if you are fans of the films, what you notice is that like Elizabeth and her sisters will dress in this more modern regency style and their parents are often depicted as wearing like the older women will be wearing the tighter corsets that go higher and down to the waist the style of the clothing will look different between the two generations and the versions that are really really well done and the Karen Knightley version there's a part where her dad is wearing like a tricord hat he looks like something out of the American Revolution right but that's because he and he often wears his powdered wig that's because he was an older landed gentleman and would have like worn and then um the other piece along with Austin I'm talking so much you guys just jump in here anytime <laughs> the other piece keep going <laughs> the other thing to know about Austin too is that um thinking of British society at this time. So there was like the aristocracy and they would have titles and things like that. But we noticed Darcy is not Lord Darcy or he's Mr. Darcy. So he was not titled, but this idea of him having 10,000 a year, I've looked up a few different conversions of this. He was a multimillionaire many, many times over would be the equivalence of this. And he would have been probably at the very high end of what they call the landed gentry. And so these were people that were landowners and generated income from the land, but they weren't always people that had titles. And sometimes they could gain a title through like special service to the crown or whatever. They might marry titles. This is why Darcy's aunt is Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Um, it's not, she might come through his mother's side. His mother may have been a lady and married into the landed gentry in an effort to bring money to the table, right? Like you had to bring, it's like what Amity said about Austin. Um, you had to bring something to the table for society to keep consolidating wealth and power. And it was either, um, money or land or titles or whatever. And so Darcy would have owned a lot of land, but not been titled. And then his friend, Mr. Bingley, his story is a little bit more unclear about where his money comes from because he's also not titled. And it becomes pretty clear that he is renting property in and around the neighborhood where Lizzie and her sisters live. And so he's maybe trying to buy his way into becoming landed gentry in some way or format but even he would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars a year maybe in, into the millions himself with the five thousand a year and then what they would do is 
all the the landed gentry and the titled aristocracy, they would go to London for what they called the season. And there is still a London season. It starts a little later than it used to, but you can still, these events are more open to the public now. So what they would do is they would go to London for the season. And it's a little hazy on exactly when the season one was, but it basically coincided with when parliament meant. So all of these landowners would come to town to vote on different bills and things of the day. And when they came into town, they needed to be entertained. And so the wealthy of London would kind of go through this like London season. And so this is why in the book we find over and over again, there's sort of this idea that Lizzie and her sisters are less because they'd never go to London. Her dad doesn't like London and her mom can't persuade her dad to go. And so there is a real despair on behalf of her mother that these girls are never going to find husbands because they won't go to London for the season, which they also called the marriage mart. Yeah, I was going to say, like, really a huge underlying reason for the, the reason for the season was to find a spouse, to find somebody to marry. Like was, They used coming out in a very different way at that point in time. It was like your time to like be exposed. I'm on the market. Like, it's just, it's so ghastly to me now. <laughs> but I just, anyway, that's what they well, did. And in the way, like the market and your marketable skills were like, you know, they talk, there's a whole bit about like whether or not women are accomplished in mm-hmm. practice and what that yeah. meant. So you had to bring all the accomplishments, but none of that mattered at all if you weren't also um, young. The husbands and wives very often quite, a big gap in ages. So if you weren't like young, beautiful, healthy, like money, titles, all of these things made you very, very desirable. So when we put all of that in context and start thinking about like Darcy and his friends, basically they're in the off season, they're out in the country, which is kind of where they went. But London, especially because of the river, they were dumping sewage in the river until like the late 1800s. And so London, especially like, certain times of year, like as it got warmer in the summer and in through the fall, London just reeked and was disgusting. And then as the industrial revolution comes in, there's so much pollution. So they would often escape to their country homes to kind of get away from the worst of the weather and the yeah season, you know, Darcy and Bingley, they're out there in the country and they're just passing time until they can go back to town and they bring their sisters with them and they're bored silly out in the country and Darcy is appalled by like the countryside and the dances. And this is actually one of the reasons I like the Kira Knightley version. Is I think it does a better job of depicting what life in the country may have actually looked like in the early 1800s. I feel like the BBC version is pretty pristine. It seems like clean and lovely and oh, like what a nice time to be alive. But there's moments in that Kira Knightley version where it'll show the servants doing something disgusting like emptying a slop bucket and there's pigs running around in the backyard because he was this country farmer and they don't always seem like it's kind of messy there's it's not always like super clean and I feel in some ways that depiction and when they go to the country dance it is it's noisy it's hot it's like in a barn and you can see why Darcy and his friends when they show up are like this is gross and awful and I don't want to be here Because in the BBC version, you're like, why wouldn't they enjoy this? This looks amazing and lovely and beautiful. But when you see it in the Karen Knightley version, you're like, oh, I can see why somebody would like look down their nose at what these country folk have going on. Yes. No. And I I totally agree with that, especially because I just, 
I love to see the depictions that are as close to authentic as possible. And so for both like the Bennett's, they were not supposed to be very wealthy. And and you do, you watch the BBC version, you're like, they look like they're doing just fine, <laughs> you know? Like, But then the Keira Knightley version, like their costumes are much more, I believe probably a lot more authentic to what a, a country family that's not super wealthy, they're, they are wearing like kind of the same outfits over and over again. Not like everything's not just like you say, pristine. So I do totally appreciate that. I watched this documentary that sort of followed the map of Jane Austen's life as far as like where she lived like this lady went to all the different locations that she lived and a lot of the places you know have been totally bowled over they're no longer there but she went into this home where she's like this is where she would have come for some dances like in the countryside or where people would just come to a dance in the countryside she's like you might look at this room and be like how would they have a ball here she's like it was very crowded and so that i yeah that is very accurate just they did with what they had and maybe it was crowded, but they're like, that's okay. We there's enough pull back the furniture and we'll crowd in here. We just want to be together. So, and then there's a huge contrast in that Kieran Knightley version. Then when they do go to the, actually the ball at the Bingley's house, which would be much more formal ball. It would be more London style. The house is much bigger. The girls look like they're in brand new dresses and they're all dressed in white, like girls who um, unmarried debutantes. Cause, cause that's another funny thing is that usually one sister would come out at a time. And as soon as mm-hmm. you went off, then the next one would come out. And this is scandalous in Pride and Prejudice that Lizzie and her sisters are all out at the same time. <laughs> the same time. Including, you know, <laughs> as the youngest, who's probably only 15 years old yeah. and out with the other sisters, right? So this is kind of scandalous. And it's remarked on, of course, by Lady DeBerg, who finds this a lot of criticism in this. And Elizabeth holds her own in that conversation. And we'll get there. I did like how they depicted that these girls really dressed up to go to this ball and did their hair really fancy. And probably for that occasion had purchased like new dresses, but they're all in white with basically the same cut and style of the dress, because that's what was kind of expected these debutantes so and truthfully by keeping them away from london they probably shielded their girls even if they didn't mean to they probably shielded them from a lot of negativity girls came to see that their value basically lay in like being decorative or wealthy and it was very very damaging i think for women of that class and breeding they they were just being you know it's a market it's like preparing the cows for slaughter yeah no for real and they didn't really care. You know, they didn't think too much. This idea, like, I think that's the other thing about Pride and Prejudice that's so groundbreaking, this idea that Lizzie would hold out for a love match. And, you know, we're like, well, of course she would. But in in that time period, that was so revolutionary that yeah. a woman would seek to be cherished. And this is one of the, val- this is the power, I think, of Pride and Prejudice and why Darcy is such an enduring character, because he is kind of a jerk at the beginning. <laughs> There's no way around it. He's not very nice. And he has to change and grow. And one of the reasons I think that Darcy is so enduring is that I think every woman feels like the ultimate love story is to know that a man would want you and be willing to give up everything for you. And Darcy gives up a lot of status and power and, you know, he gave up a lot to marry her. And I, I often call this the Darcy effect. If I ever do like a 
you know, like a master's degree in English or something. I feel like that's what I would want to write my paper about is the Darcy effect and how this ideal has persisted throughout like a lot of really good literature and especially romantic style literature is nothing is more appealing than a man who's willing to sacrifice everything to marry the woman that he loves. And in the end, that's really a lot of what, that's what Darcy does. And that's why his first proposal is such a disaster because he admits all that to Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, I love this because I don't know anything about, so my friend in high school used to watch the movies and I like Emma and Sense and Sensibility, all of these. And I was like, I don't get this. This isn't interesting to me. It's not anyways. But what's funny is I'm reading the first few chapters and I'm like, wait a second, Mr. Darcy's a jerk. Like, (laughs) and I said to my sister this weekend, she was here and I was like, I was under the impression that he was like the one, like the guy that everybody wants to marry. So I just thought that was kind of funny. And then and, and we'll you'll get there. You'll get yes. there. <laughs> I was like, I've read what five, six chapters. I'm like, he's a jerk. What is this? What is this about? You know, I follow somebody online called Modern Mrs. Darcy. Like funny. But, <laughs> She's like trying well, to live her fantasy. And I yeah. think the other Darcy fallacy is too, is this idea that like when a man falls in love, he will he will change for you, right? And I think couples who stay in love for a long time change and grow together. But I do think that that's an unfortunate Austin fallacy also is this idea that like, well, if he really loves me, he will change everything for me, right? And um, we will see Mr. Darcy grow and develop, but we'll also see that that still waters run deep, right? Darcy does some things on the surface that are really awful. But over the course of time, as we learn more about him, we're going to begin to understand like he has some pretty fundamental goodness too. That's sort of hidden because he doesn't flaunt his business for everybody to know and see and hear. I think that that's like the most important thing is that, yes, he has these surface level uh, behaviors, um, probably affected. What's that? Prejudices. Yeah. Yeah. That they can be overcome. It's a lot more difficult to start over from the foundation, but he has a good and solid foundation from this father who was who was a really wonderful father and loved people and and instilled that in him you know he sort of developed this hardness and this crustiness over time but crust can be scraped away and that that is what happened and something that too i think that she brings out with mr darcy is how much he appreciates a witty and intelligent woman and that's something that i think jane austen was really trying to push and that was just not done I was reading about how she wrote this. Well, when she was like 11, I believe she started reading, writing for the first time. And she wrote like this series of stories or whatever called Juvenalia. And they were basically to mock some of the popular writing at the time that really, it was just like very wordy and very, it just really, it just made women look like they were just these silly brainless objects. And she was disgusted by it. And so the Juvenalia was really like a parody on that to make fun of it. And then when she was about 17, she wrote a book called Lady Lady Susan that I don't think it was ever published or anything, but it was all about this woman who was just like 
ridiculously intelligent, like so clever, but she used that cleverness to just like bulldoze her way through society and like destroy lives in, in the process. But I think it was like sort of the, the extreme other end that Jane was just trying to be like, look, women can be like all the way over here too. We're not just these silly, stupid things for, for men to write about and make fun of and just take advantage of. There's a wonderful film adaptation of Lady Susan. Um, oh, also. I did not know that. It goes okay. by a different name and it's delightful. It, I, I'll look that one up and I'll make sure we get it in the show notes or something that I've got to, I'll have to look up on IMDb because it's, it's a more obscure one. This reminds me of the great Gatsby that you know, like when Anne was talking about, like the people like bored out of their minds and have nothing to do. And they're just like what you were saying about, you know, in the great Gatsby, they t- the women are portrayed as these vapid, yes, stupid. We have no purpose. We just have no brain. And anyways, it's kind of funny. And I'm excited because Sydney is going to double major in history and English. And, you know, I haven't been able to get her to read any kind of classics or anything. And so I'm excited. Now I'm thinking they're probably going to make her read some of this. (laughs) I will say I hope so. So we've, we've talked about this before, this idea of so like our new English teachers that are coming like onto campus, they do have some really like interesting ideas for how to approach English literature. And they're coming with a lot of like fresh ideas and enthusiasm. And none of them want to teach Shakespeare because I think some of it is like fear of that, like lack of exposure, different things. And it's not just Shakespeare, it's other classics too. I remember a few years ago in my son's like IB English class, they were debating the merits of the canon. And I said to him, I said, how can you guys possibly be debating the canon? You haven't read anything. Yeah. <laughs> how can you how can you make a case for like what goes in the canon? What was great is my oldest son really listened to me on that one mm-hmm. and started reading um some classics and I gave him like my top five list and he'll read anything. So he pounded through all of them, including Pride and Prejudice. I got my oldest son to read that. Then I, by listening to you guys' podcasts and thinking about it, I gifted everybody in my family a classic for Christmas. They like opened them up and you can see the look on your their face like this is a gift because they've gotten books before, but it's always like, I know they'll like this. They'll read this. You know, we've read all the Percy Jacksons and the Harry Potters and like they read a lot. And then I kind of explained to them and that I had really like handpicked these books for very specific reasons for my kids. I don't know. I tend to like the edgier. I don't know if edgy is the right word. I like darker classics. I So um, the three books that I gave were my one son I gave to kill a mockingbird. My other son, I gave Lord of the Flies because he's dealing with lots of like boy issues within sports and just different things. And I'm like, here, try this. And he's actually really, really enjoying Lord of the Flies. And then um, my husband, I gave uh, of mice and men because it's such a classic kind of novella and it's, it's short. I thought he would like try to plow through it. And so we're making, you know, varying progress on that. But I want to say that it was your podcast that inspired me. We've read a lot and I need to make more of an effort to make sure they're exposed to some of these classics. Well, then when you did that, I was like, oh, I need to buy my family classics. So I did. I went and bought like, I can't remember when I bought Charlie, but he'll read different classics. And I mean, he's reading like Animal Farm in 1984 and those kind of books but and he says he'll listen to us if we read something he's interested in well you need to ask him what he's interested in and then we'll we'll talk about it that is so awesome and i the thing i love to kill a mockingbird i love lord of the fly and the thing about it is 
there's so many situations in modern life where there's no other way to explain it than to just be like, this is such a Lord of the Flies situation, you know? <laughs> and so if you're in a, in conversation, everybody's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just feel like the classics give us such a better grip on like what's happening around us and give us ways to, at least for me in my kind of small brain, like I, it just gives me a much better way to be able to explain things, to be able to reference back to these these brilliant minds who did write these great books. I was talking to a friend the other day because she was like, I picked up a book for the first time, like since high school. And I was like, that's awesome. So she was telling me about it. And, and I was like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of this book that I just finished, which was sort of a, a modern take of David Copperfield. She, and she's like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, oh, well, it's just like one of Charles Dickens books. She's like, and who is Charles Dickens again? <laughs> so I was like, okay, a Christmas Carol. <laughs> like, <laughs> at least heard of a Christmas Carol. She had well, heard of a Christmas Carol. <laughs> I think what happens too is that as we don't read them, we're losing some of this like cultural history that like makes us rich. And this kind of goes back like even deeper thinking really out of the best books. So I think part of the reason kids now are having a hard time accessing classics is it's a, I call it the Sunday school problem. Like mm -hmm. kids don't know the scriptures anymore. And it used to be that even kids who weren't necessarily religious or raised in religious homes would have Bible exposure somewhere or, yes. something, or even people who didn't stay religious did Sunday school as kids or something. And now that's so unusual. My kids have said like in recent times in school, like, like my son that just graduated from high school, they read a bunch of poetry and different things this year. And he was the only one that still understood like half the references they were talking about because of his biblical background. Yeah. So the illusion is just lost on these kids because they exactly. don't exactly. And, and they also aren't reading like more modern literature is alluding not just to the Bible, but to classic literature. And if exactly. Have, if you haven't read Shakespeare or the Bible or Greek mythology, like you lose a lot of what literature is trying to tell you. Then even my other son, who's been doing Macbeth in school, my 10th grader, they did do Macbeth. I was really excited. They're keeping Macbeth in the curriculum, right? He's like, yeah, I'm doing better than almost anybody else. I'm like, really? Because sometimes his reading comprehension has not always been, he's, he's my one that struggles most with reading it, but mm -hmm. he's, He's a brilliant student. He's so smart. His reading is like, he works at it, right? It's not his in his wheelhouse as much. And I said, well, why do you think that is? And he goes, the Bible. He says, we've been studying like, the, he said, last year we did Old Testament. This year we studied New Testament. So it's just the Bible language because it was written, you know, Shakespeare was written same time the King James Version. Exactly. Of and so he feels like he's not, he feels like they can read these kind of complex passages and he's able to pull meaning out of them and other kids, it doesn't mean anything. That was kind of an interesting um, side note there for my kids is that these two things kind of go hand in hand, like being a scripture reader makes you a better reader of the classics and reading classics can also make scripture more accessible. Absolutely. hundred percent. Well, and I think the other thing too, as we think about reading, I know uh, years ago we had a friend who's, and I won't, you know, nothing specific, but whose husband was like, I don't get why you feel like it's so valuable to read fiction. Right. And, and my, th I kind of pondered over that and I thought, well, there's, there's truth with a lowercase T, which is like facts. Like this is a set of facts we agree on with this lowercase T, but there's these big, like kind of universal eternal truths that are this kind of uppercase T kind mm -hmm. of truth. And I think that can be found in lots of places. And I think that 
you can read a whole book of facts and never come to those big T truth moments. And you can read one line from a piece of literature and say, oh, yes, that is true. And it hits you in that really, really powerful way. And I just think it's part of our like shared humanity to be storytellers. And long before people could write things down or print things out to read, for tens of thousands of years before that, humans were storytellers. And I just think it makes it, you know, to read story and to engage with these old tales and these stories gives us this kind of collective human consciousness and culture and commonality that is really powerful. I just heard that reading fiction for six minutes a day makes a huge difference in your mood, makes you happier. If that's, the only, if that's the only reason, and that's yeah. a good reason. If I read three yeah. hours a day, I should be really happy. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> yeah, I love that so much. And you express that just so beautifully and powerfully. And I feel like that's why it's so important to me and why my huge thing is just is reading aloud to kids just so many good books. There's just so many wonderful children's classics. I totally consider A Wrinkle in Time a classic. And I guess the metrics may be controversial, but I don't care. That one's totally a classic. Um, just as much as the Chronicles of Narnia are classics. But I think it's so important to read those to kids. And it's important to hand them to, to them to read, but also I love engaging with them and reading to them because we all experience it together and there's so much to be pulled from it that from an adult's experience, we can pull things out that they may may not by themselves, but it's always incredible what they pull out and are able to to talk about with you. And just being able to vocalize those things, it, it, it uh, cements it in their brain so much more than if they're just to listen or to, or to never hear a story. Like you say, but like you said before, how do we expand their world, even in this modern world of so much technology? How do we really expand their brain and their world without these wonderful stories and without these wonderful books? Because I think part of expanding the world is expanding their knowledge of the past. And I, I think they become much more empathetic, sympathetic, just better humans by having an understanding of our past, which a lot of times comes from reading wonderful books from the past. So. You can see. Well, I'm really appreciative of what we have too. I mean, whenever I read these old books and I look at the way, like how hard, well, in this book, how hard Lizzie has to fight just to be heard, to be listened to, to like have a voice in her society. It just makes me so grateful that it's not that hard anymore. And I'm grateful to women like Austin and these other sort of groundbreaking women who had to like go up against the big publishing machine or like break all these glass ceilings. And they did not enjoy the benefits of the work that they did. But these are women who paved the way for any strong girl that would come afterwards. And I'm so grateful to them for being willing to be on the front lines of that so that women now can have a voice. So grateful. Absolutely. And it's something that we've talked about before is that so many times like the most appreciated authors in our time or even artists, whoever, were people who had very difficult and tragic lives and were unappreciated generally in their time. Dickens was more appreciated, but he had a kind of a wacky life. But Jane Austen is like the poster child for that. You know, she didn't enjoy success as much as she should have. 
let's see, Sense and Sensibility made her 140 pounds. And that was enough to sustain her family for about three years, which that's great. But like, it's not like they were living posh lives. It was, it was barely right. It was just like to meet their basic, very basic needs. But she had lots of struggles and lots of difficult things, but it's through their struggle and, and the fact that they kept fighting that we have all this today. And thinking of like just different film versions or adaptations or different like Austin adjacent things. There is a really good movie with Anne Hathaway who plays Jane Austen and it goes through like her life story and it, you know, it's a fictionalized account, but they, they pulled from the letters that she shared with her sister to do it. And it goes through her relationship with um, what was his name again? Tom. Tom Lafroy. Tom Lafroy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. who is played by he's great. Anyway, Scottish actor. <laughs> and okay. um, it's, it is delightful. And so that's with, uh, yeah, Anne Hathaway plays Jane Austen in it. And it is um, a very sweet kind of fictionalized account of Austen's life that I think is very, um, it's pretty moving. It's really good. I have have that DVD here. Like I I borrowed it from my sister. Oh, probably 10 years ago. I still have it. You watched it? No. (laughs) Now you need to watch it. Yeah, we just bought a DVD player. So maybe that's what I'm going to do today. So it's so funny because I, I have no... I haven't seen the movie, and so I don't know who plays Tom Lefroy. But as I've seen pictures of him, he reminds me of the kid who plays Malfoy in Harry Potter. What is his name? Is it his first Tom name? Bell. Tom. I was like, his first name is Tom. But yeah, his pictures kind of remind me of Tom Felton. He's quite a bit younger than Anne Hathaway, so probably he was not opposite her. But Sorry, I'm looking it up because it's going to make me crazy. We do this all the time when we're recording. <laughs> we totally do. That's what editing is for. <laughs> it's called Becoming Jane. Yeah. Isn't oh, it? That's right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I've heard of that. I'm getting there. James McAvoy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he is great. Cool. And they're so cute together. Oh, and there's a lady, Lady Gresham is a character in it, kind of an older character. And that's Maggie Smith who plays. Oh, I love her so much. So yeah, it's a really, really good cast. Actually, it's, it's good. Yeah, I should probably watch it and return it. I mean, I probably moved it three times from different houses, but anyways, poor Emily. That's, that's one thing we should, I I could do too, is I could go through, like, there's so many different, like, film adaptations and versions over the years that have been done of a variety of these. Um, there's a really good Mansfield Park one that's addresses the fact that Fanny Bryce's adopted family in Mansfield Park probably made their money in the slave trade. And so that is a component of the story, like, this kind of darker side of Austin that's alluded to. Mm-hmm. You know, if, somebody, if it ever says in an Austin book that somebody made their money in Antigua. Yes. Yeah trade and that is where a lot of the you know the aristocracy was continuing to make money slavery was abolished during that regency period but it was still possible to make a profit from it yes because <laughs> even though you couldn't buy and sell slaves in england it could be done in in the americas still for a long time so and you think of like austin not being much appreciated in her lifetime or the the finances or the money or whatever if you look at like Austin adjacent products like over the years and all of the billions of dollars that have been made seriously from, from these really what it what amounts to about like six or seven novels just these kind of core yeah. novels but I also think that her novels have become like a pattern for like tropes in romance novels oh, like and pride 100%. And pride, all, all like enemies to friends to being in love and then yeah. it's 
like the proximity. There's several times where she accidentally drops Elizabeth into Darcy's path. And, you know, this proximity kind of meet cute. And then um, she's, and then her other books, you know, like the story about the sisters and Sense and Sensibility and how powerful that is and the stories of women. And Austin is the original, the originator of a lot of the romance novel tropes. She is the OG, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, you know, you talked about the the juvenilia that she wrote that was like satirical. The novel um, Northanger Abbey is meant to be like that too. She kind of sends up like gothic novels. Mm-hmm. And so this girl in the story who reads too many gothic novels sees a tragedy where there wasn't one and it almost loses her the guy because she's so crazy about thinking yeah. there's a ghost or that something like terrible has happened right and as there was and it's just a normal family doing normal things and so Austin just like kind of mocks that <laughs> yes yeah it's gonna be fun I know this is so fun I'm so excited I'm like seriously I've read some chapters and I'm like I get it now this is funny it is yes. funny. Like it's, it's this kind of like delight in the absurd. And especially yes. when, because Lizzie and her dad both have the same sense of humor and that's really mm-hmm. what it is, is. They just see the absurd in everyday life and it's so charming. And I don't, I think Pride and Prejudice, there's a lot of great opening lines in novels. You guys talked about the best of times, worst of times when you did Tale of Two Cities. I still think Pride and Prejudice has the best <laughs> of any novel anywhere ever. Spoiler alert. Next week, I will talk about I am married to Mr. Bennett. <laughs> I'm excited to hear more about that. I'm reading this and I'm and like, Mr. Oh Bennett my is like one of my most favorite characters of yeah. all time. Better to be married to Mr. Bennett, Bennett than to be Mrs. Bennett. I would yes. Say. Yes. <laughs> That's true. It's like, true. oh my gosh, this is David. Oh. Very funny. Yeah, it's not a romantic bone in his body. For sure. <laughs> um, well, it's just his like teasing. Kind yeah. Of. That's, yeah. That's just who... kind of his snarkiness. It's, yes. It's... The first chapter when he, they're oh, like, you must be a stranger to one of your parents. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when he's like, you have this so, impossible choice. So we've been married 20 years and you still don't get me? Like, that's what my husband would say to me. Like, we've been married for 22 and a half years and you still don't understand my sense of humor. <laughs> I should be like, I just don't think it's funny. No. <laughs> You're teasing me. Anyways. Okay. So next week we were going to do one through 10. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like it was one through 10, but we were just, okay. Yeah. So next week we will cover book one, chapters one through 10. <clears throat> really quick. Let's start with Amity. What are you reading? We should hear from Nan. What is Nan okay. reading right now? <laughs> so funnily enough, I this is one. I'm not always reading something I would like recommend necessarily to other people because yeah. I'll try anything and then I'll be like, man, that was awful. But the one, that, and it was actually a reread that I did. Um, I got to find it here on my hoopla. It's called To Con a Gentleman. And it is actually like kind of a Regency romance novel. It's by an author I've tried this year. Her name's Sarah Adams. And she writes both contemporary and then she's written a couple of Regency romances, mm-hmm. but I appreciate her because she's really, really clean. There's no like bad language or bad words, but there's still, I feel like some authors take that out and then they get rid of all like the chemistry. She strikes a really good balance. I think her characters have good chemistry and she doesn't write super typical people. She puts her people in really interesting situations and gives them interesting backgrounds they're always really hopeful so this one was called Takana Gentleman it's a Regency romance by Sarah Adams 
And I felt like it was really sweet. I liked it. And I've read other things by her too that I like, but more contemporary romance. So that was one that I read recently. The other one I'm reading, um, so my youngest son, who's not like, again, like it's hard for him to sustain like reading for a long time on his own. So I've kind of like glommed him onto like audiobooks or podcasts, which have been really good for him. And we just recently redid the whole Hunger Games series. And now we're doing the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because I've never mm. read it. And I am having a hard time with that. I think it's interesting, the whole history of the Capitol, but it's hard to really like a book when you hate all the characters. And that's where I'm right. at with a lot of songbirds and snakes. I don't like any of the characters. And Laura, that was why I had to quit reading Daisy Jones and the Six. I waited so long to get it and I wanted to read it. And I kept reading. I, I got through probably 75% of it. And then I was like, I just can't anymore because I really didn't like anybody. There's one and character though. There is one. It's, oh, his um, wife. Yes, and yes. she's the hero in the end. Like, yeah. And then I, I did kind of read a summary of the end because I'm like, is this going to end in total disaster? And when I read the summary of the end, I'm like, maybe I could revisit it and finish it. But I was so excited for it, and it's got such a great cast that they've just put together for the Amazon show. But I just think it would be like too edgy for me or something. I don't know. Yeah. I wanted to love it because I've loved a lot of other Taylor Jenkins reads book reads books. Yeah, I really loved um oh the one when she thinks her husband's dead and then moves on, but he comes one back. true love. Yeah. That, I liked one yeah. true love. I um, thought that one was really good. Yeah, she has a way of putting her characters in these impossible situations. Yes. But I but just like the counterculture behind Daisy Jones and the Six. It was kind of one of those like these people are really awful and they do all these awful things and then they get to enjoy all the success. I did not love that. I have to say I kind of like But the documentary got, style was interesting. What's that? She tells it like in documentary style, which is That kind of was very interesting. I thought it was kind of brilliant because I really like went and looked them up and I was like, is this real? Because she made it so believable. But I did struggle with it. I it had been recommended to me by many people who were like, love it, love it. And I I did kind of have a hard time with it, but I probably still need to see it through to the end. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. The um a lot viewers who read it said, I feel like I read a different book than everybody else read who told me how much they loved it. I don't know. I loved it. I that that's probably my favorite. It was the first Taylor Jenkins read I'd read, but mm. A lot of people don't like Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. A lot. Now, did she read that? Did she write that? That one is by Suzanne Collins, right? It wasn't somebody else who tried to take over. Um, but And she wrote that one more recently? Yes. Okay. It's about almost 10 years after the originals came out. Yeah. It's the story of President Snow and kind of his rise to power. Yeah. And so I feel like she's creating like some empathy for that character. But from the very beginning, you know, like a lot of like Katniss is like he's a survivor and he kind of comes from this hard background to rise up. But he is very from the beginning, he's very, very willing to use other people for his own ends. Mm -hmm. And he's just kind of without compassion and because it's the capital it's all about the capital the characters who do have any like modicum of compassion are pretty trounced on pretty fast hmm. and they don't really get to come back from that because it's the capital it's really interesting to see this idea of like well the games had to come from somewhere and it's basically told in like year 10 of the games when they aren't very successful 
and how it's a lot of Snow's ideas that are going to make the games start to become popular. And so um, it's very interesting to see how something like the games could have evolved and like where the anger was coming from and what led to it. So I think that's all very interesting because I love the Hunger Games series. I think it's mm -hmm. brilliant. Yeah, same. But I will say, I I don't know. It sounds like it's a, a good idea and a good book in general. But I will say by the time I got to Mockingjay, there were a lot of characters in that that I was like, I don't even like you anymore. Like I have a hard time even rooting for you because I don't really love you because you've kind of evolved into kind of a not a hero well and I think what I think what's brilliant about those books is Suzanne Collins is a good job because there's a lot of like children's literature now because Hunger Games spawned a whole thing just like like Twilight spawned all the vampire books now yeah. Hunger Games spawned all the like fight to the Dystopian death and <laughs> teenagers and yeah just yeah. but what I think she did a brilliant job of that the other one's not as much is that she shows that if you were really in situations like this, the really intense and horrible damage that it would do to your character and That's your true. function in the world. And I feel like some of these other books, they keep putting their characters over and over again in mortal peril. And the next week they're just ready to jump up and be in mortal peril again. Yeah. They'll kind of talk about damage, but not to the extent. I mean, she really explores ideas of like, you know, she talked about kind of writing those during like the Afghan war that kind mm -hmm. of drive look forever. And just um, the real, like the PTSD and the trauma and the drug use that comes as a result of having been put into morally indefensible positions that you have to do something awful to save your own life. I, I don't think it's meant to be an easy read. And I think people that read those Hunger Games books just for entertainment are sort of like missing the point of like, yeah, what they're about. They are very entertaining, but I think she's trying to do more than that. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I read that and totally appreciated that side of it. But I was like, why did Katniss end up with Peta? Oh, why? I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't. I never really liked that guy. I'm a big team Peta fan. Are you? <laughs> Me too. I think I liked him. Oh. But I'm not team Edward. No. <laughs> Definitely team Jacob. <laughs> I'm just team no Twilight. I mean, that just drives me crazy. <laughs> Well, I want to share two kids' books. Okay, so I, I talked last week. We were we aired a um last week in the time that we're airing this. I don't know. <laughs> we were talking about summer reading last week. And I talked about everyday reading, which Nan is the one that told me about everyday reading, but she comes out with these hundred picture book lists every year. And so Presley and I are reading through them. So I'm like getting on the library and like getting anyways. And so and Presley is very picky about her books. And so when we find one that she likes, <laughs> I'm like, we're going with it. So the first one is called What Happened to You by James Catchpole. It's about a boy with one leg. It was funny because I read it to her once and then Presley's like, I want to go read that one leg book again. It's about this boy that has one leg and he doesn't like to meet new kids because they always want to know what happened to his leg. And so he just kind of says to him like, well, what do you think happened? And they like try to guess. And he's like, no. And in the end, and he just kept saying, he's saying that, no, no, that's not what happened. And in the end, the kids don't care what happened to his leg. And they even ask him like, are you tired of people asking you about your leg? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and I think what's funny about the book is like, you don't even find out what happened to his leg, but you just realize, I mean, I think it's really good with kids, especially to like expose them to stuff like this, where, you know, she hasn't ever met 
a kid, another kid with one leg. Well, what if yeah. she does? Right. So anyways, and then we've been kind of able to talk about like, does it really matter what happened to his leg? She's like, no, it's, we don't even find out. So anyways, I thought that one was really cute. The second one is called how to talk like a bear. And I was, I, I was so excited about the, this book. I wanted to read it to my nephew when he came, he's almost three, but like, of course, because I wanted to read it to him really bad. He did not want to listen to it. And he loves books. So I'm like, maybe my sister will get this. But anyways, it's called How to Talk Like a Bear. And it has the kids like interact with you. So you're like, okay, roar, it's your turn. So they roar. Okay, no, I need it to be a little more powerful. And then they roar again, you know? And then at the end, it's like, okay, now let's, I'm tired of roaring, let's grr. And so they they get to kind of read with you. And then it's like, okay, now the end of the book is like, now you... Now that you know how to gur, you can get what you want 100% of the time. And then the last page is like, well, maybe not 100% of the time. <laughs> it's really cute. But my sister is a preschool teacher. And she told me that that's the new trend with books is these interactive. Interactive. Yeah. It makes me think of the like, let's play and oh, what is it called? I can't remember. But it's where the kids literally like touch this dot on the book and they're like, push it really hard and it'll make it over this box and things like that. It's, it's cute. Like yeah. It. He's like roar so loud that my hat blows off, you know, or whatever, but yeah. it's, so it's how to talk like a bear by Charlie Grandy. And we have read it multiple times now, like press the S for over and over and over again. So there's two winners out of my hundred list of books. Awesome. <laughs> The cutest is after you read those books over and over again to your kids is before they can read, they'll start to like flip the pages and they'll even like finger point and follow along and like act like they're reading, but they're just like reciting the book because they've heard it. So yeah. Many times. And she knows some of the lines already and she's kind of like reading it with me. It's really cute. All right. Yeah, really cute. Okay. So before I share, I want to back up to the Hunger Games for a second. <laughs> My issue is she shouldn't have ended up with any of them. Maybe, yeah. Like it goes back to like the Studio C where they're like they do sort of the the parody and they're, they're just sort of like making fun of it completely. They're like the world is dying and we have to go fight and kill children. But the biggest decision when I'm 17 is who am I going to marry? <laughs> is it going to be Gail or is it going to be Peta? <laughs> like, why are you even worried about that right now? Anyways. That's my biggest issue. She shouldn't have ended up with a new. Okay. So I decided to just talk about the book I'm reading with my girls right now. Matt has been gone a lot with like FSY and now he's with his cousin. And anyway, so I was just like, girls, you get to choose any book you want. And Matt doesn't get to vote because he's not here. So they chose the book Remarkable. And it's a book that Ridley read a couple years ago. And she's like, I just want you to read it to us. So it's by Lizzie K. Foley. It's totally like a, it was written in 2012. Um, and it's just like a fun, silly book. So it's, here's a little synopsis. Everyone in Remarkable is remarkable. Everyone except Jane. And her name is literally Jane Doe. While the rest of the town is busy being talented, gifted, or just plain extraordinary, she's never been anything but ordinary. Then Jane finds herself in school with the mischievous Grimlet twins, and her life suddenly gets a whole lot more interesting. And when a strange pirate captain appears in town, setting off a series of adventures that... Setting off a series of adventures that puts the whole town in danger. It's up to Jane to save the day. 
along the way, she might just find that she can be pretty remarkable after all. So it's really cute because it is, it's very much like putting your, your mind in the mind of a little girl who's looking around and going, everyone is so amazing except for me and just finding her own little niche and the areas where she does have gifts. So anyway, it reminds me of Encanto. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you'll join us next week as we discuss Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, chapters one through 10. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.